Merry Christmas, everyone. What a joy. I'm so thankful for Sylvie. You know, she gets to get back in the schools in January and take the gospel to young children. And so, man, praise the Lord for that opportunity for Sylvie and her team. Hey, listen, tonight, I just want to take a little bit of time uh, to, to talk about the incarnation. Obviously, tonight, that's why we're here. Tomorrow, we'll celebrate it together. And so I want us to focus our attention just on Jesus tonight. I think, for us anyway, we um, we have a busy time. We've got family in town. Many people have come to visit us. Um, we've been wrapping presents, eating panduse, probably too much panduse, putting on too many pounds, uh, putting puzzles together, which has been fun. But amidst all the, the shopping, uh, all the hustle and bustle that's going on, all the gatherings, it's a busy season. And I want to make sure for us as a church that our hearts are calibrated correctly, and we're thinking appropriately about the incarnation. So my desire tonight is just for us to consider a few things, for us to walk away tonight singing these songs, but really marveling that God became a man 2,000 years ago. We just sang that song, Christ the highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead seed, hail incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I think sometimes we sing that song and it's familiar to us, but the reality is there are a lot of folks who are singing this song and maybe not singing it thoughtfully the way they should. And so again, my desire is for us in the midst of opening presents and parades and pageants and parties, for us to consider the incarnation. Because when you think deeply about the incarnation, the implications of the incarnation, it should produce joy, it should produce reverence, it should produce repentance, obedience, you should feel a sense of great, great relief, as well as an eager anticipation. The Incarnation Church, it's a gift of grace. It's a gift for you. And it's a gift, listen, that you didn't deserve. C.S. Lewis said, non-Christians, they seem to think that the Incarnation implies some particular merit or excellence in humanity. But of course, it implies just the reverse, a particular demerit and depravity. He says, no creature, listen to this, that deserved redemption would need redemption. They that are whole need not the physician. Listen closely. Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for. And so Jesus had to come live a perfect life and make it worth it. So when we think of the incarnation, it should humble us, fill us with great gratitude that God sent his own son. He sent that little baby Jesus and he came to the manger. And it's a reminder for us that God had this plan and this purpose before the world was ever created. 
God is not a random God. He's not a reactionary God. But this was his plan from eternity past. And he always, even as Sylvie said, he keeps his promises. He's unwavering in his resolve to make sure that sin is defeated, to make sure that we would be restored to a right relationship with God. And he accomplishes all this through the incarnation of his son. But just real quickly, if someone asks you, what is incarnation? Your response should be real simple. It's in the flesh. In the flesh. And I just want to show you a number of scriptures, spend quite a bit of time looking at a few texts to get our minds wrapped around what it means to come in the flesh. Because the Bible is full of it, maybe you haven't seen it, but Romans 8.3 tells us that Jesus was sent in the flesh. Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not only was he sent in the flesh, the Bible's very clear that he comes in the flesh. So 1 John 4, 2 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Which means that for all of the Mormons who say that Jesus is not God, well, first, our second John says, there are many deceivers that have went into the world. What is a deceiver? Those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That is the deceiver and the antichrist. The Bible also tells us that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. So he was sent in the flesh, he came in the flesh, he manifested himself in the flesh. But if that's all he did, it wouldn't be sufficient, because just as Sylvie said, it was prophesied that he would have to suffer. And so we read this in 1 Peter 4.1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... But he just didn't have to suffer. The Bible is very clear that he had to die. And so we read this in uh, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh. And it's because he was put to death in the flesh that he could make us alive in the spirit. But not only that, the beautiful thing is that he abolished in the flesh the enmity that existed between God and man. And so Sylvie so marvelously did on the cross, he brought God and man together. How did he do that? Because he took on flesh. And he reconciled us in his body. Colossians 1.21, and although you were formerly alienated and enemies in the mind and in evil deeds, it says, but now he, that is Christ, he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. You ask, how consequential is this idea of the incarnation? If there is no incarnation, there is no gospel. If there is no incarnation, there is no salvation. If there is no incarnation, there is no relationship 
with God. And so when I think of movies that I've seen or music that I've heard, and there's a big deal made about little baby Jesus, well, he was born to die. He, he was born to live a perfect life and to go all the way to the cross, a cross that both you and I deserved. And so listen, all the benefits that we read about in Scripture, they're ours by faith because of the incarnation. And I want to do just with the rest of our time is just kind of bullet point 10 amazing considerations regarding the incarnation. You say, Dom, you can do a 10-minute sermon just a few minutes? Yes. And this is why. Because this Christmas, the thing that I desire for you most is for you to worship and praise God with your whole heart. And if we want to get to the doxology, you have to have a great theology, a Christology. The more that we understand what the implications of the incarnation are, the more we can respond in humble, grateful, joyous praise to the God that deserves all of that and more. So, once again, the incarnation, it's not incidental. The incarnation is essential. So here are just 10 truths about the incarnation. The first is, Jesus is the eternal Son. He is the eternal Son, which means that he's always been the Son of God. John 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, what we read is, and the Word, remember, the Word was God, the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, when Jesus put on human flesh, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus's existence. The conception and birth in Bethlehem was the start of his humanity, but it certainly wasn't the start of his divinity. And that tells us two things. Just the first and most obvious, Jesus has always existed. But secondly, it wasn't the divine nature that became human. It was the second person of the Trinity. The gospel does not make sense without the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, willingly humbled himself, chose to put on human nature, chose to become a slave, chose to go to the cross in obedience to the Father. He's the eternal Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is the full image and expression of the Father. He is the full image and expression of the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they fully and equally share the divine nature. And you say, well, where do we see that? And what makes us distinct as confessional believers who believe that Jesus is God? Well, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. All of God's perfections and attributes are found in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And listen, as the divine son, he participates in the divine rule 
and also and receives divine worship. And so when we look at that great passage in Psalm 110, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And you flip on over to Ephesians and the New Testament affirms, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him all things as head over the church. And that passage that we studied in Philippians, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is saying all things have been created through him and for him. He's appointed the heir of all things. And when you flip on over to Revelation, we read this in chapter 5. I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So whenever someone tells you Jesus was just a great teacher, he was a philosopher, he was a philanthropist, he was a humanitarian, you say the Bible says He's God. He is God. Jesus exists as an eternally oriented, in a eternally oriented relationship to the Father. And all that is saying is that it was the Son alone who comes from the Father, lives by the Spirit, and it's not the Father who became the Son. It's not the Spirit who became the Son and incarnate. It's Jesus. And the way that we know God the Father is through Jesus. Jesus said himself, no one has seen God at any time. Uh, sorry, John says this, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let me just show you in John chapter 5. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5 as we look at Jesus' utter dependence on the Father. Everything he did was in reliance on the Father, in step with the Father. John chapter 5 and verse 19, it says there, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Skip down to verse 30. I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of him who sent me. 
From eternity past and in the incarnation, the Son never acts independently of the Father. Everything that we see Jesus do, God is doing that. Number four, Jesus added humanity. This is so important. He did not subtract divinity. He added humanity. He didn't subtract divinity. Instead, he's added to himself a a second nature, a human nature, which means that he brought upon himself a human body, a human soul. He didn't stop being God when he became a man. No, the doctrine of the incarnation means that there are two distinct natures. There's the divine nature and there's the human nature, but they're united in one person. So he is God and he is man. We say he is the God-man. Jesus is not schizophrenic. Jesus is not a modalist like T.D. Jakes suggests. Jesus is both God and man, fully God, fully man. Number five, Jesus is fully human, though, and completely sinless. And this is the marvel and the mystery of the incarnation, because he was a man, and yet the Bible tells us very clearly he was without sin. Even though he took on the fullness of human nature, he took on a human mind and human emotions and a human will and a human body, he was able to live as a human without ever sinning once. Our inborn sinful nature, our pre-wired disposition to rebel against God was not a part of Jesus' makeup. He fully experienced all the effects of living in a sinful world, but never once, never once lost his patience. Never once said anything ungodly, unloving. Every single act, every single word, every single thought, every single emotion was pure and holy. And so Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, even as we have, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And Peter tells us that we were redeemed not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Number six, Jesus's virgin conception is the means by which the incarnation took place. When you think about Christmas and what we're celebrating, some people will say we're celebrating a miraculous birth. We don't want to be too technical here, but we're really not. Mary's carrying of Jesus for nine months like Becky is carrying her baby. It it was fairly normal. The delivery, I'm sure, was fairly normal. It probably hurt a lot. Jesus came out crying. He didn't come out glowing or with a halo. And when he was put in the manger, he, he was a baby. The miracle was in the conception. The seed of a woman. Well, that doesn't make sense. But that's what God promised in Genesis chapter 3. It was the conception that was the miracle. No husband, 
no father, no sexual intercourse. But God was in Mary's belly. That is a miracle. And this, the virgin birth, is essential for our understanding of the gospel. Number seven, Jesus did not override the limitations of his human nature. Some people will suggest that, well, he, he was God, so I guess it really wasn't a temptation. But in fact, Jesus becoming a true man means he had normal, physical, mental, volitional, psychological attributes and capacities of original humanity. He experienced wonder. He experienced weakness. He was a human like you and I. He got hungry. He got tired. He felt pain. He experienced the whole gambit of human emotions. I love that passage in John 11 when he sees Mary and Martha and they're weeping over their brother Lazarus and he sees what sin has done to the world. And we have that short verse, the shortest English verse, and Jesus wept because he sympathizes with our pain, but he also experienced the heights of joy and camaraderie and laughter. He was like you and I. And at the same time, number eight, he did not relinquish his divine nature. So that as Jesus is walking and living on earth and teaching, he's he's also upholding all things by his own power. How does that happen? I don't know. It's a mystery. It's It's a marvel. But Colossians tells us, in him all things hold together, so that neither the Son's deity nor his humanity are ever diminished. Number nine, Jesus became for you and me the new and better Adam. By taking on our human nature, the Son became the first man and the new creation and the great mediator and the new covenant head. As the Son incarnate, his life, death, and resurrection, it reverses what took place in the garden. And as our better Adam, he forges ahead and also becomes our last Adam. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 shows us how he charters and he's the champion of our faith. It says, It was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through their suffering. And then finally, number 10, God the Son incarnate is utterly unique and he alone is Lord and Savior. Given who God is and all of his glory and all of his moral perfections and what sin does to human beings, how it separates us from God, when we think of the Son's incarnation, his entire work, we have to glory in the fact that he brought salvation. There was no other way. Do you realize that? Without the incarnation, we're still in our sins. Without the incarnation, we're condemned to hell. Without the incarnation, we are separated from God forever. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we'll end on this. Romans chapter 5. Paul, in that great section, talking about our justification, writes this in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, many more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then... As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be appointed righteous. Now the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. That is the greatest truth and the most loving thing to say. Brothers and sisters, do you realize the incarnation means everything to us? It displays the greatness of God. Think about that tonight. Dream about it tonight. Wake up to morning excited to come to church and contemplate this more, that that little baby born in a stable He was the son from all of eternity. He condescended down to earth, but he's forever transcendent. He came with humility and generosity and full of grace, and yet he's glorious beyond all compare. Marvel this Christmas, brothers and sisters, at the greatness of God. He can't be contained in a box. He's outside of the time domain, and yet he's condescended to us. And even tonight, he wants us to glory that he has redeemed us and rescued us and reconciles us. And he didn't allow us to rot in our sin. And he did that for you and me because he loves us. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song. Oh God, what glorious truth the incarnation is. Father, no one can come up with this story. The greatest writers and authors Those with the the wildest imaginations can never conceive such a perfect story. We know that Jesus fulfilled all of the scripture, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies to a T. And so, Father, we gather tonight to think, to consider, to allow our hearts to rest on the truth that you revealed to us through your holy and precious word. Thank you, Lord, for condescending for taking on flesh, for becoming a baby, for growing in wisdom and stature, being a man, obeying every single command, 
and going to a cross that we deserved. Oh Lord, help us once again glory in the greatness and the majesty and the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.